The following is a sermon from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information and resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. morning. Today's scripture reading is Matthew 26 verses 14 through 30. And if you are using the Pew Bible, that's on page 781. And if you don't own a Bible, please feel free to take a Bible home as a gift from Park Church. Matthew 26. Then one of the 12 whose name was Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom." And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Art. Good morning. It's good to see you all. My name is Gary. I'm one of the pastors here at Park Church. Looking forward to getting into this passage with you. Uh, We are just a week away from the beginning of Holy Week, which is one of the most significant weeks in the church calendar, one of the most significant weeks for our church family as we celebrate the final week of Jesus' life. And where we're at in the Gospel of Matthew is looking at that Holy Week in particular. And what we'll look at tonight, specifically the betrayal of Judas, betraying Jesus, and this Last Supper meal, which we celebrate week after week after week uh, through communion. And so we're going to talk a little bit about the significance of that and the way this whole meal kind of works throughout the history of the Jewish people and the way it shows us the love of Christ. Um, we, we celebrate these rituals every week, and we take time every week and spend time in God's Word, but we always want to remember that we need the Holy Spirit to make these things alive to us. 
that we can celebrate rituals, we can listen to teaching from God's word, we can even sing songs. And, and unless the Holy Spirit is actually moving to give us hearts that grow in a love for Jesus, that see who he is and what he's done and believe in him with true faith, unless the Holy Spirit's actually awakening us to those realities in our inner life, uh, then we're just gathering together doing things. And so we're going to just pause for a moment and pray that the Holy Spirit will work in our lives this morning as we consider a really familiar passage, but I think that has a depth that might be a new to many of us. Also, as we pray, uh, just as a reminder, our Park Students Group is on a missions trip right now. Uh, they're loving and serving some local churches in our city, doing stuff with meals and food bank and really, really beautiful stuff. So we're going to take a moment and pray for them as well. So would you join me as we pray to our King? And Jesus, uh, you are here. Uh, you are moving among us through your spirit. You're working in, in us. You've brought people into this place today from all uh, different experiences, backgrounds, kind of current situations. And feel aware that as we gather, uh, the amount of stories that exist in this room, the different things people are experiencing, that you, you care about every single one of them. And I pray that your spirit would show that today. That your spirit would minister and care and comfort and encourage and challenge and convict and heal and redeem and awaken uh, every one of us in the ways that we need it today. Pray that you'd help us to see Jesus, the depth of his love, the cost of his love, the beauty of the cross, the power of redemption, of deliverance, of freedom. Pray you'd work in power. Uh, we thank you for the chance to be in the city on mission as a people, to proclaim the goodness of your kingdom and of your reign, but also to represent it. We thank you for the students and the volunteers that are doing that right now in really beautiful ways around the city. Would you part your spirit on them to give them strength to love and serve the city, to love and serve other local churches, that they'd grow, that they'd grow in a heart of compassion and awareness and action, but also that you'd work in each of their hearts and minister them, to them today. So part your spirit on them as well. Thank you for your faithful love to each of us. Help us to taste and see it as we look at your word together. In Christ's name, amen. As a culture, uh, we are a culture that is full of holidays, full of holidays. Uh, if you're on the kind of an epic pass train, you know, there are like certain days, if you get the epic local, that you can't go because there's holidays that mark those things, President's Day, that kind of stuff, Dr. King Day, all of these kind of like MLK Day, you have these holidays that mark our culture. I think we're also a culture that celebrates a lot of different holidays with no real context of what they actually mean. We just like celebrating. Like you give us something, like if it's a day off work, awesome. If the banks are closed, whatever. Uh, we do it online anyways. Like just... Just give us a reason to celebrate. Give us a reason to kind of ha like have a day off work, uh, to eat some good food, and we're in. And we often forget about what these holidays mean. We just celebrate, uh, celebrated St. Patrick's Day, uh, which as a person, G Gary McQuinn, this Irish heritage that I have, uh, means a lot to me because it's about Ireland. And we're like, what is it about Ireland and Irish? I don't know, but let's drink Guinness and, you know, let's like have some corned beef and cabbage and dye Chicago's River green and like have a good time like it's it's saint patrick's day right like what is saint patrick's day we lose the meaning of these things like saint patrick is this fourth fifth century 
person who was abducted, brought into slavery, was held in captivity, became a Christian through an incredible dream and vision that God gave him, became a Christian while in slavery, escaped that slavery, later trained to be a missionary, took the gospel back to Ireland to his captors to proclaim the gospel in Ireland, to his captors saw thousands of people come to Christ in a movement, a revival that moved throughout Ireland. That's St. Patrick's Day. And we're all drinking Guinness and dying river green and pinching people that aren't wearing green or whatever it is. My kids know all about it. Just the pinches are a big thing in our family. It's like the one day they're allowed to. Um, one day they're allowed to. But we, we have these celebrations, right? We do these things. Or Cinco de Mayo is coming up in a couple months. It's like Margs and tacos. Like what else do you need to know? You're like, I know what that's about. It's about Mexico's Independence Day. Actually, it's not. it's not. It's not even about Mexico's Independence Day. That's on the 16th of September. Uh, it's a different holiday celebrating their victory over France, which is a lesser holiday in Mexico than the September 16th Independence Day that they celebrate. It's uh, more of a kind of cultural Mexican-American holiday that we celebrate Mexican culture and heritage. Uh, it's, we, we forget about these things. But our, our nation as a whole is structured around these, around rituals, around feasts. We, we do them all the time. They mark our calendars. They kind of, kind of mark out our years in very significant ways. And as a nation, we've kind of marked these calendars in ways that do what rituals do. Uh, rituals are de- designed to remind you of your story, to celebrate your identity, and to reinforce your values. That's what rituals are designed to do, to remind you of a story, your story, to celebrate your identity, and to reinforce your values. And so America is marked by these kinds of rituals. We have Thanksgiving that marks kind of aspects of our foundation with the Protestant reformers coming to the States, celebrating God's goodness and provision. It's way more complicated, but that's what it was designed to celebrate. You have things like Independence Day that celebrate America's independence. And we celebrate that with fireworks. We have rituals that we kind of do on a daily basis in public schools, or at least they used to. Things like Pledge of Allegiance to remind people of one nation under God and our allegiance to that nation. Or before every sporting event or major kind of gathering, you have these rituals of the, the national anthem that is sung and flags are waved and people put their hand over their heart and sing along. All of these are designed to remind you of the story of America, to celebrate the identity that you have as an American, for those that are Americans, and to reinforce American values. It's what those do. And we kind of operate in that world with these kind of ritual days and these ritual practices that kind of create this system that reminds you of your story, celebrate your identity, and reinforce your values. As a nation, that, that marks a lot of us, but it marks most nations and cultures. And perhaps one of the cultures and nations that is the best at this in the history of humanity is the people of Israel. The people of Israel have been marked by rituals, feasts, and holidays that remind them of their story, that celebrate their identity and reinforce their values. Rituals that have been practiced without major interruption for 3,500 years. And what we're going to look at today is the ritual that launches all the other rituals. Their year is marked by seven ritual feasts. Three of them were pilgrimage festivals where they'd make their way to Jerusalem. Four of them were not pilgrimage festivals. But these seven feasts would mark out the sort of calendar year of the people of Israel. And what we're looking at today, the feast of the Passover lamb and what it launched is the festival of unleavened bread was the beginning of their ritual calendar, the beginning of their year. And it is the oldest ritual meal still in observance today, 3,500 years old. 
There's evidence of ritual meals that come before the Passover meal, but none that are still in observance today by any people group. The Passover meal that's celebrated by the people of Israel will be celebrated next week by the people of Israel and by many Christians. And the Passover meal that we celebrate and commemorate every single Sunday through the Lord's table is the oldest ritual meal that's still in observance today, going all the way back to the original Passover, Israel's exodus from Egypt. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to kind of unpack the passage, look at the context, what's going on with Judas, and bring it into this Passover meal that Jesus has with his disciples. And what Jesus does with the Passover meal is, is stunning. If you've ever had like deep traditions that you love and value, and when you see somebody like breach those traditions, is if it like violates your heart, like Jesus does some of that. You know, how like I, I hate the kind of idea we've talked about it before, like music, Christmas music before Thanksgiving is just like a hard pass for me. My family has like overtaken me. They've outvoted me, but it still grates against my soul, but I yield to the majority and, uh, and it is what it is. But it's like this, it's, it's like a tradition that I grew up with and like, this is not how it's supposed to be. And you might have those things of what you do on Christmas Eve or what you do on Christmas day or what you do for Easter or what you do for whatever it is. It's a, it's a tradition. We always do this. Well, the people of Israel had always been doing a thing for 1500 years. And then Jesus comes along and honors that tradition, but changes it in profound, profound ways, ways that have shaped us as a people for the next 2000 years as a church. And so what we're going to do today is look at that context. I want you to see it in your Bible. It's a really beautiful and stunning passage in a lot of ways. Uh, So keep your Bible open. We're in Matthew chapter 26 and look with me at, at what happens and how this unfolds. I want you to remember what has just happened. Jesus has pronounced judgment on the people of Israel, on the leaders of Israel, because of their persistent ongoing rebellion. He's taught about what that judgment will look like in 70 AD, what that judgment will prefigure in the final judgment that is still to come. He's talked about that, and then he withdrew from that place. He's talking to his disciples, and in this kind of experience, there's a woman that comes up to him. Mary, we find out from the other Gospels, who breaks open this flask of perfume, pours it out on him as an act of devotion to him him, an incredibly expensive perfume. And all the disciples are frustrated. They're indignant. They're saying, Hey, we could have, this is a waste of money. We could have used this money to sell it and to give it to the poor. Now she's just wasting it. And Jesus honors her in a really profound way. He's saying she truly understands what's going on. He has said over and over and over that he's going to Jerusalem. He will be betrayed. He will lay down his life. He will die. And on the third day, he will rise. They are brain dead and foggy all the time. The disciples and this one person in the narrative seems to get it. And it's this woman, Mary, she gets it. And what Jesus even says, the purpose of her doing this thing with this flask is to prepare him for his burial. She understands that her Jesus is about to die. And instead of betraying him or running away from him, she runs towards him in an act of devotion. And that sets up a a stark contrast from the line that's to follow. So look with me at what it says right here. Look at verse 13 of Matthew 26. Jesus says this of the woman, truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. It's an incredible act of devotion. Next sentence. Then one of the 12 
whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests. And as soon as you hear that, you should be thinking like, dun, dun, dun. Like, like the music changes in the scene. Like the chief priests are plotting to kill him. It's already said that. Earlier in this same chapter, verses 3 and 4, they're so frustrated, they're looking for an opportunity to kill him, but they can't do it in front of the crowds. They want to kill him. You can see it in 26, 3 and 4. They want to kill him. But the crowds will be so frustrated because the crowds still kind of like him. So they're looking for a chance to kill him away from the crowds. And Judas, one of the twelve, walks away from this incredible act of devotion. And he's done. And he's looking for the chief priests. And you feel that kind of intense tone shift that happens as Matthew's walking through this story. He went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And this is where the gospel takes a devastating turn. Matthew's been preparing us for this when he mentions the name of Judas Iscariot. Throughout the gospel, he'll mention the one who would betray him, the one who would betray him. Every reader of the gospel of Matthew, anybody that was familiar with the story, was familiar with the betrayal of Judas. And so this wasn't like a shock to them, but to the original like experience and the actual event unfolding, nobody had any sense that something like this was going to happen. In fact, as this story unfolds, we'll see that everybody kind of like accepts their own kind of like community as like equally kind of allied to Jesus, but also potentially all equally in doubt of him as they kind of consider, maybe I'm the one that's going to betray him. Is it me? Is it me? Nobody thinks it's Judas. I knew it all along. Nobody thinks that. So Judas goes to the chief priest. He steals away from the group, goes to the chief priests and says, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? It says, then they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. We're going to stop here for a moment, but we're going to spend the majority of our time in the Passover meal. But what, what you see in Matthew's presentation of Judas and what you see in what will follow is the reality that there is in all of our hearts a struggle to believe the realities of who Jesus is. I want you to remember what the disciples expected of Jesus when they signed up for this whole mission. When they signed up and said, yes, I'm going to follow Jesus, what they expected is a military leader to gather a following, to build that following, for the momentum to grow, to go into Jerusalem, and probably the religious leaders are going to be like, yes, our Messiah is here. The people are going to be like, yes, our Messiah is here. We're going to build a big coalition, and we're going to buy force, or however we need to, we're going to drive out Roman oppression and restore Israel to its former glory days, back in the days of David and Solomon. We're going to get back to that moment. And this Messiah is going to do that. And so when everybody's like, Jesus, I'm going to follow you, that's the framework in their head. As the story has unfolded, the tension between their expectations and the experience was growing. It's where the parables came in to help the disciples make sense of, we thought everybody's going to follow you, but a bunch of people hate you. And so he tells stories like the sower and the seeds. He tells stories of the pearl of great price. Understand, if you understand what you're seeing, you would lay everything down, all your expectations, and hold on to Jesus. And he's telling them these parables to help them make sense of the fact that the kingdom is not going to look like what they expect it to look like. That tension has grown. We've seen the disciples really struggle to get their minds and hearts around it. They finally come into Jerusalem. Jesus gets on a donkey. Everybody's saying, Hosanna, the Messiah's here. And Jesus is like, I am here. And everybody's like, game on. Think it's go time. This is Palm Sunday. We'll celebrate next week. And then over the next few days, the intensity of the conflict rises to an absolute boiling point. And it becomes crystal clear, not only is this going to lead to an incredible conflict, but that Jesus has owned the fact that the end game is his death. And Judas finally gets his mind around that and says, pass. 
That's not what I signed up for. That's not what I thought I was getting myself into. I thought I was joining the Messiah in this revolution against Rome, and now I'm finding out that I'm like hitched up to a guy. I'm on, I'm on a wagon. I'm hitched to a wagon that's like going to this guy's death, and everybody hates him, and they're looking for an opportunity to kill him, and he's not even going to try and escape it? No. And so he cuts his losses, tries to get some money out of the deal, and is going to go his own way. Jesus isn't giving him what he wanted. He's not giving him what he thought he was signing up for. So he cuts his losses and leaves. So we see the betrayal of Jesus as, as, of Judas as this gross, gross betrayal. And it is. It certainly is. You'll see Jesus' very firm condemnation of it in a moment. But it is in all of us. The capacity for a Judas-like betrayal when Jesus isn't who we want him to be when he's not doing all the things we want him to do, when he's not giving us the life that we long for, when, when the values that we have to get things out of life kind of trump what Jesus is and who he is, these become idols. And in our heart, these things can destroy us. I love this phrase that Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods, when he's talking about idols, listen to how he defines it. He says, what is an idol? It's anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. He goes on and says this. A counterfeit God, which is what he's defining idols as, a false God, is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. For Judas, that longing to grow in maybe influence, maybe it's worth, maybe it's power, maybe it's this kind of this desire for geopolitical Israel to have this place of prominence, whatever it is and wherever it played at in his heart, something about that longing kind of superseded his allegiance to Jesus and his devotion to Jesus. And that crushed his life of worship. And he decided in that place, I'm going with my heart and my heart is chasing after these false gods. In his mind, not false gods. I'm going after comfort. I'm going after safety. I'm going away from death. I'm going away from conflict. I'm going towards money. I'm going towards living. As he thinks about what it's going to be if Jesus is going to get killed, what's it going to be for all of his 12 closest friends? Am I just going to die too? And the answer is yes, probably he would have. 11 of the 12 later will end up being killed because of their allegiance to Jesus. John, the apostle, the only one who wasn't killed because of his allegiance to Jesus, was exiled on the, uh, on the island of Patmos where he suffered intensely. Like, and he says, no, I'm going to go for comfort. I'm going to go for wealth. I'm going to go for security. I'm going to go for safety. I'm going to go for life on my own ter team, uh, terms instead of Jesus. That is in all of us, and we'll see in a moment. It was also in all of the disciples. The passage after this passage is Jesus saying, all of you are going to turn from me. And so in this moment, you see an incredible contrast between the woman who just said, even if you're going to die, because of who you are, because of what I believe about you, because I believe that you came, you redeemed me, you washed me, you changed me, you loved me, you accepted me, you forgave me. I don't care what happens. My allegiance is in you. She breaks open this, this incredibly, incredibly expensive bottle of ointment and dumps it out in devotion at the feet of Jesus to anoint him for his burial. Knowing what's coming. She says, I'm in. I'm with Jesus. And Judas says, I'm out. And we'll see after this passage, the other 12, the other 11 say, we're out also. And in the middle of all of that, you have Jesus. A stunning picture. In the middle of that is where you have this Passover meal. As everybody is turning away from him, 
As one of his closest friends is betraying him in moments, the other 11 will turn away from him and abandon him. In that space, he unpacks one of the most beautiful demonstrations of his love that's recorded in scripture, a demonstration of his love that we celebrate every single week as a church family, and that is the Passover lamb, the Lord's last supper with his disciples. So I want you to see this in the passage. We're going to unpack this piece by piece. We're going to talk about its history, talk about what Jesus does to redefine it and what it means for us. Look with me at the passage. Verse 17. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, that's why hundreds of thousands of people have been making their way to Jerusalem. Palm Sunday, they're kind of journeying into Jerusalem to prepare for the festival of unleavened bread. The beginning of that festival is the Passover feast. The Passover feast would typically happen on Friday. Lambs would be slaughtered on Friday afternoon. The Passover feast would be Friday evening. For them, it's Thursday evening here. We're on Thursday evening. And so when Jesus, uh, sorry, uh, now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? Where will you have us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said to them, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. We need to talk about this a little bit. This has shown up a couple times when Jesus is riding into Jerusalem. He's like, hey, go in here. There's going to be a guy. There's a donkey. Just be like, the teacher needs it. And it's like Jesus has prepared some things before this moment. Uh, He isn't with his disciples 24-7. Like something has been prepared. Some arrangements have been made. Somebody has prepared for the fact that Jesus is going to be coming in, is going to need a place to stay. And so he sends the disciples in, says, there's going to be a person there, remains anonymous. Tell them, the teacher says, my time is at hand. They'll know what that means. We're going to use your place to celebrate the Passover. We learn from other gospel writers that this is an upper room uh, in Jerusalem. Really powerful moments. And so just imagine it for a second. The disciples make their way into town. They find a guy and they say, hey, you know, uh, the teacher says my hour is at hand. We're going to use your place. And he's like, all right, you know, how many will be here? I'm like, oh, you know. We need a table for 26. Like, 26? I thought there was just 13 of you. It's like, yeah, we, we all prefer to sit on one side of the table. Uh, <laughs> Jesus, Jesus says it's better for the pictures. It's better for the pictures. Future painters are going to really prefer this over us. All right, this is what you have in your mind, right, Leonardo da Vinci. This is what you have in your mind when you think of the Last Supper, uh, which is fine. Bunch of white guys sitting on one side of a table. Um, <laughs> fascinating. Uh, that's not what it looked like, but it's a great painting. It's worth, <laughs> worthy of honoring Leonardo da Vinci for it. Um, great painting, not what it looked like. So what, what was the Passover meal? Uh, what was the Passover meal? Uh, the Passover meal, again, had been celebrated for 1,500 years by the people of Israel almost every year and had a very set ritual observance. So there are some clear commands about what needs to take place in the Passover that exists throughout the Torah, throughout, especially in Exodus, some in Leviticus, some in Numbers, but clear commands about what needs to be involved in the Passover meal. And uh, what I want to do is kind of walk with you through that ritual, because Jesus is going to follow that ritual for the most part. And where he deviates from it, it's astounding. It's astounding. But for every Jewish reader, they knew what this was they did the same ritual it wasn't every family saying what do we want to do for passover well we'll do it this way and this other family like well our tradition is this way they all did it the same for 1500 years and certainly it evolved how many of you have celebrated a seder supper before you know raise your hand all right so maybe 100 or so people in here 
typically, if you celebrated a Seder Supper, most of the time that's modeled after, even kind of Messianic or kind of Christian Seder Suppers, modeled after, after modern Jewish Seders, which have evolved over time, especially after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. It changed the game for what they were doing in the Seder Supper. So I'm not going to kind of engage in what that looks like today uh, for the people of Israel and for Jewish people around the world. It also looks different in different cultures. As the diaspora happened, Jewish people are scattered around the world into different cultures, climates, different foods that were available in different ways. And so it just changed a little bit. But still, the basic framework is the same. And so I want to put on the screen kind of the framework of the Jewish Seder, uh, and we'll kind of walk through it. There was, in the kind of Jewish Seder, it's celebrating Israel's exodus from Egypt, and they would do it through a meal. And the way that they would teach their children and the next generations of the significance of their story, their identity, and their values was through these meals. And this meal was the centerpiece of their calendar year. This meal was a massive moment. And so what they would do as a people on the 14th day of Nisan this month, at the beginning of the year, they would gather together and they would have a meal. And in this meal, they would often use kind of low tables. And they did this often in Greco-Roman culture, but the Jewish people didn't always do it this way. But they'd have these low tables where they'd recline on cushions. And this was a symbol of their liberty, their redemption, their prosperity, their wealth. Even while they're in captivity, we're going to, this night, remember the freedom that we have. We're going to recline at a table together, and we're going to celebrate this meal. The meal was framed by four cups of wine. Four cups of wine. I'm actually going to grab this because I prepared it for you guys to see. So they would have essentially four major pieces to the meal and four cups of wine. Thought about drinking four cups of wine this morning? It's five o'clock somewhere, but uh, pass. I need to be ready for the 11. Uh, during the 11 though, <laughs> game on. Uh, so they have four, four cups of wine that would frame out the meal. So they'd recline at the table and the host, typically the, the father or the head of the household in some ways, would lift up the first cup and offer a blessing over the beginning of the meal. They'd offer a blessing to lift up the first cup of wine. And in that blessing, they're saying, blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe, who brings forth, who creates the fruit of the vine. And they celebrate this meal and they welcome people to the table. And the first thing they would do after they hold up the cup and say the blessing they would all take a basin of water and they'd dip their hands and wash their hands, both at sanitary, it's good to wash your hands before you eat, and as a sign of ritual cleansing before the meal. They'd wash their hands, they'd dip their hands in the dish of water and wash their hands. Next thing they would do is they would take vegetables and they would take these vegetables, typically parsley, and they'd take parsley, something like this, and they would dip it in either salt water or red wine vinegar or other things. I have red wine vinegar. They dip it in this red wine vinegar and they'd eat what are called the carpas, the green vegetables dipped in red wine vinegar, and they'd eat it. And that, lots of traditions behind this. A lot of people say different things. The oldest traditions talk about this being a symbol where they'd tell the story of the, the betrayal of Joseph when his brothers, the 11 other brothers, the 10 at that time, Benjamin hadn't been born yet, the 10 other brothers betrayed Joseph. And they took his coat and they dipped it in blood of a lamb. And they took it to his father to say that their, their brother had been killed by a lamb. And they would tell this as the beginning of the story that led them as a people into their slavery in Egypt. It was the betrayal of the ten, 
that led to their slavery in Egypt. Joseph goes to Egypt. He ends up in Egypt. It's through Joseph's presence in Egypt because of a famine. The people of Israel or the families of Jacob, Israel, make their way to Egypt. And this is where the people of Israel made their home in Egypt. This was the first cup. It's what launched the meal. Then the host would lift up the second cup and say the blessing over the second cup again. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. After the second cup happened, he'd pick up a piece of matzah, and he'd break the matzah, and he'd begin to unpack and tell the story of Israel. Break the matzah and tell the story of Israel. The story of Israel would be told through the vehicle of the next foods that were eaten. And so the kids would be taught through the rabbis to ask four major questions. Four major questions. This night is not like any other night. What's so different about this night? For example, dad, mom, on all other nights, we eat all kinds of bread with leaven in it. And we bake it. We let it rise. But on this night, we only eat unleavened bread. Why? On other nights, we eat all sorts of vegetables. But on this night, we only eat these bitter herbs. Why? On other nights, we we dip our food or we don't ever dip our food. But this night, we dip our food in two different dishes. Why? On other nights, we take lamb and other meats, and we eat all sorts of meats, and sometimes we roast them, sometimes we boil them, sometimes we whatever. And this night, we only eat baked, roasted lamb. Why? And the parents would tell the story of the Exodus. They'd tell the story through the vehicle of these foods. They'd talk about that through slavery and through the brutality of the Egyptian people, over the Israelite people, they were stuck in slavery, and they take this bitter herb, they called it maror, which is horseradish, and they talk about the horseradish and the bitterness of slavery. When you eat, how many have eaten straight up horseradish before? How many of you like it? Weird. It's weird. You're weird. You're not supposed to like it. God said you're not supposed to like it. I have my little baby daughter, my 18-month-old, smell it this morning, just like as an act of cruelty. And I was like, smell this. And she just goes, she can barely talk. She's like, no, stop, stop. And just started doing this, and she went and hid underneath the coffee table. Uh, it, was, it smells awful, and that's the point. It's the point. It makes you cry. It's like, it's, it's horrible. And it talks about the bitterness of slavery from, from Exodus 1. It was brutal brutal slavery. And the people of Israel were stuck there for 400 years. Couldn't free themselves, couldn't escape, couldn't make their way out. Couldn't make their way out from that. And they take the matzah and they take the green vegetables and they dip it in the bitter herb and they'd eat it and they'd remember the brutality of slavery. And then they'd remember and they'd tell the story of the 10 plagues, how the Lord sent Moses to bring deliverance to set them free. And they'd recite the 10 plagues that God brought in power as a warning, as a caution, as a demonstration of his power over Egypt, beckoning Pharaoh to let his people go. But Pharaoh resisted and resisted and resisted. And so it came to the 10th and final plague. And the Lord told his people to bake bread, but they're going to need to leave in a hurry. And so don't put leaven in it. There's not time to let your bread rise. I make pizza every Friday night as a family. We do like a homemade pizza thing. I make the dough early in the morning, have some yeast in it, and it rises over a couple hours. Then we take it, we put it into balls, put it in the refrigerator, let, or let it rise a couple more hours so we can make pizza, do some homemade pizza in a pizza oven on Friday nights. We do it every Friday night. It takes hours, and that's like the one-day thing. You can do a three-day thing. There's better recipes. We do the one-day thing. We do the one day because Friday is my day off and I have time to do that. And so we do the one day thing. We do it Friday. This matzah, I made it also this weekend, but it took me 10 minutes. 
Took me 10 minutes. Just don't put yeast in it. Throw it in the pizza oven. Presto. Matzah. Matzah. Unleavened bread. We can do it fast. It's fast. You're going to need to do it fast because you're going to be leaving in a hurry. And that's the story of the unleavened bread. You're going to be leaving in a hurry. You're going to do it fast. So the kids are asking these questions. The parents are explaining it. You have the maror, the bitter herbs. You have the matzah, the unleavened bread. And the third piece of it is the sacrificial lamb. And so they would sacrifice a lamb to remember what God had done. And they would remember that the final plague, the final act of God's judgment on Egypt, a country who had oppressed them with brutal slavery, who had killed their own children years before, who had killed their children as an act of of oppression and brutality and genocide, who had killed their children. The Lord had begged the people of Israel or the people of Egypt, the Pharaoh of Egypt, to stop oppressing his people, gave them plague after plague after plague, judgment, remember? Escalating, perpetual, ongoing judgment, pleading with him, let the people go. But Pharaoh resisted in a hard, impenitent heart. And so the Lord told them, the final plague will be the death of the firstborn in all of the land of Egypt as a final act of judgment to set his people free from that slavery, to redeem them and rescue them from the brutality of what was happening. And so the final plague came, but the Lord gave Israel a way to escape that judgment. And it's through the blood of the Passover lamb. You can read about this in Exodus chapter 12. In Exodus chapter 12, the Lord says, I'm going to go through Egypt. I'm going to strike down the firstborn in all of the land. Not just the Egyptians. I'm going to do it in all of the land. But I will give an escape. I will, I will spare and give deliverance and redemption and protection to all who trust in the blood of the lamb. And so they were to take a lamb and to slaughter the lamb and take the blood and paint it over the lintel and over the doorposts of the house. And what the Lord says in Exodus chapter 12, says he's going to send through the land an angel of death. In Exodus 12, it's called the destroyer. And it says, the Lord says, when I see the blood on the doorposts and on the lintel, I will pass over it and will not allow the destroyer to enter. The way we tend to think about it, and pretty much the way most of you have heard this your whole life, it's close, doesn't destroy the meaning of it, but it's not quite into the nuance of the text. The way you think about it is the Lord going into the house and striking down the firstborn. It's not the way it works out in the passage. The Lord is over the judgment, but he's sending a destroyer, an angel of death, And the idea of the Lord seeing it, the word for Passover is to hover over, to stay over a space. He says, when I see the blood, and the way blood is used ritually throughout all of Old Testament history, is a cleansing space so that the holy presence of God can make his home in a space. That's why there's blood in the temple. That's why there's blood on the temple utensils and a blood over the Ark of the Covenant. is like the Lord's home. The Lord makes his home here. So paint the blood. In other words, sanctify this space. Purify this. Make your doorpost sacred space. When I see the blood on the doorpost, I will pass over and I will not allow the destroyer to enter through the blood of the lamb. Trusting in the blood of the lamb brings deliverance from judgment. And the people of Israel would tell this story as they'd eat the roasted lamb. It's a profound, profound story. And they say, this is our story. And the way that the parents would tell the kids is we were slaves. Even 1,500 years later, we were slaves. It wasn't just your ancestors. It's our story. We're a part of this pain. We're a part of this story, and we're a part of this deliverance. He's our God. And they'd eat this meal, and at the end of the meal, they'd lift up the third cup. And they'd lift up the third cup and give the blessing over the third cup again. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. 
And they'd thank God for the meal. They'd thank God for the blessing. They'd thank God for deliverance. And they would sing a psalm, the Hallel Psalms. The Psalms 113 through 118. They'd be singing them throughout the meal, but they'd finish in 113 or towards 118 at the end of the meal. They'd sing this hymn, the Hallel Psalm. As they sang that hymn, they'd finally lift up the fourth glass of wine, give the final toast, and remember that they're still longing for the restoration of Israel. They're still longing for the Messiah to come and restore all things. It's the way they did it every year for 1,500 years, with some variation depending on whether they're in Babylon or in Israel in different spaces. But longing for the Messiah to come to restore and renew them. This is the Passover meal, and this is what Jesus has asked his disciples to prepare. Prepare the meal. Prepare the meal. The, The difference is, again, that would normally be on Friday night. This is on Thursday evening, which is the beginning of the Passover day. Remember, Jewish nights begin at sunset, or Jewish days begin at sunset. So we're now into that final Friday, but it's Friday, meaning like the Thursday night before Friday, Friday. And so they're having this final meal on Thursday evening. The disciples prepare the meal. Now I just want you to see the way it works through this passage. It's stunning. Keep this in mind with these four cups and these different things. When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the 12. That's what, that's what we do. We recline at the table on Passover. It's what we do. It's what we always do. That's what we're doing. We're at the table. We're all reclining there. And as they were eating, he said, so now they're eating. So the first cup has passed and they're eating. What are they eating? Maybe the carpas, the green vegetables dipped in the vinegar, the red wine vinegar to remember the betrayal of Joseph's brothers betraying Joseph. While they're eating, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Just like the ten betrayed Joseph, so one of you will betray me. It's a mood change, for sure. They're expecting this feast. Change the game. But it's profound. It's, it's the part of the story where they're talking about betrayal. And Jesus says, one of you will betray me. And they were sorrowful and began saying to him one after another, and this isn't all public, is it me, is it me? It's, it's like throughout the meal they're saying, is it me? Which I think is crazy. It's not them saying, I bet it's Judas. I bet it's Peter. He's, said, he's had a couple brain dead moves. Like I know he's a leader, but remember that time he's called, Jesus called him Satan? I bet it's Peter. <laughs> and Peter's like, it's probably me. It's, uh, it's probably me. Um, they're all saying to him one after another, is it me? Is it me? I love it. It's not this like, it's those other people. It's, is this in me? What a powerful thing to introspect. Is this in me? It is. And it's going to be in all of them to some degree. And he answered, who has dipped his hand in the dish with me? Remember? We dip our hands in the dish to wash our hands. We dip our hands. Well, who did that? Well, all of them did. It's, it's unclear. It's not this kind of like clear statement yet who it is. Again, nobody like hears Jesus saying that. Like, I knew it was Judas. Like, it's still like unclear who it was. In other gospels, they talk about who's dipped the bread in the cup. We talk about dipping the bread and the maror and the bitter herbs. Like, it's, it's, the, it's one of you that's eating with me. And they're coming up asking, is it me? Is it me? Is it me? And then Judas comes up finally. He says this, well, Jesus says, the Son of Man goes as it's written of him. So, like, the betrayal's happening. It's going to happen. One of you is going to betray me. But what's about to happen is according to plan. You, you enter into now one of the greatest mysteries in the universe, 
which is the absolute sovereignty of God over all things, and humanity, our total culpability and responsibility for our actions. The Bible affirms both of them as totally true. And as you try to like sort through it, figuring it out is like an impossibility. So many theological systems exist because somebody takes one of those truths at the expense of the other, tries to elevate it. These are true. We make real decisions. We have real agency. We have real culpability and real responsibility for our actions. And God is totally in control. And this passage brings you right into the heart of that tension. We're not going to unpack it much more. It's not the main point of the passage, but it's there. He says this. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. He's saying the judgment that's coming on this betrayal of of Jesus, on his betrayal, is extreme and intense. It's a way of saying it's the most extreme experience of judgment that will come. Nothing would compare. And so Judas, who would betray him, Matthew says, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And Jesus said, You've said so. You've said so. So that's the first cup. Like, good start to the Passover meal. Like, wow, what a change. Jesus at some point lifts up the second cup, gives the blessing, says the second cup, and they begin to unpack the meal. And this is where the leader of the meal would start describing the meaning of the meal. And Jesus takes the bread, and he breaks it, passes it out, says, this is where you're supposed to tell us the meaning of the meal. And he says, this is my body. Again, that's familiar to us because we talk about that every week. Was not familiar to them. It's crazy talk. This is my body. He's stepping into this meal saying what happened in that Exodus experience and deliverance from Egypt is what I'm doing. It's what I'm about to do. This is my body broken for you. He says, take, eat. This is my body and this is the meal. And they unpack this meal. He walks through it. After supper, the way Paul will talk about it, he took the cup after supper. Which one's that? The third cup. It's the cup after supper. He lifts up the third cup and he says this. It's a profound statement. Took a cup and when he had given thanks, which is what they did, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Profound statement. There wasn't a symbolism in the cup of wine for the blood of the lamb, but Jesus is taking that image and saying, this cup represents the bloodshed that I'm going to do for you. And it's forming a new kind of covenant, a new way of relating to God, a new way through which people will come into the presence of God, a new way through which people come into relationship with God as the father. And it's going to be through my blood. God created a people out of Egypt through the blood of the Lamb, and so I'm creating a people coming out of slavery through the blood of the Lamb, my own blood. This is the blood of the covenant, and it's not happening to redeem you from slavery to Roman oppression. It's happening to redeem you from your slavery to your sins. It's coming to forgive you, which is to release you from your sins, from the power of your sins, from the penalty of your sins, from the presence of your sins. It's through the blood of Christ that forgiveness and redemption and deliverance and freedom are coming to all who would trust in the blood of the Lamb. It's a profound statement, and it's after supper. And it leaves you to kind of look back at the list and be like, well, where did they eat the Passover lamb? And they did, there was no Passover lamb. Or was there? 
But was there? The way John would reflect on Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus would himself be the Lamb, and he would go the next day to the place where the lambs were slaughtered. He would be betrayed. He would be rejected. He would be abandoned. He would be falsely accused. He would be condemned to death, and he would be slaughtered where his body would be broken and his blood would be shed as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the final sacrifice for sins once and for all, to deliver all who would turn to Jesus. And Jesus in the third cup says, this is my blood, the blood of the covenant. He says, and I'm not going to do the fourth cup with you. Not until the kingdom comes. I will drink that fourth cup with you, just like the people of Israel long for the restoration. He says, I will drink that fourth cup when the kingdom comes. And it says, in the final verse, they sang a hymn, Psalm 118, and left. And this is the last supper of Jesus with his disciples. You know, Jesus almost nowhere in the Gospels explains the meaning of his death with words, the way Paul will reflect, or the way Peter will reflect, or other Gospel kind of epistle uh, writers, letter writers will reflect on the meaning of his death. The way that Jesus chose to give the meaning of his death is through a meal, through redefining an ancient ritual meal, a meal that had existed for 1,500 years before the life of Jesus, and a meal that has continued to be celebrated for the past 2,000 years, a meal that we celebrate every single Sunday as we take the bread and the wine, and when we remember the body of Christ was broken for you, the blood of Christ was shed for you. And we do it in remembrance of him. And we do it to proclaim his death until he comes, until we feast with him at the marriage supper of the Lamb, at the final messianic banquet, at the final feast Jesus is not drinking of the wine until that day. While we drink wine week after week after week to remember, he's waiting to drink it with us when he comes again and makes all things new. It is a beautiful, beautiful invitation. And so he's giving us the meaning of this moment. So what does it mean? This is one of the most profound expositions, demonstrations, of the meaning of God's love for us, the meaning of the cross in the Bible. It's the cross is about Jesus laying down his life as a sacrifice for our sins. That his sacrificial death brings freedom from slavery. Slavery to sin, slavery to death, slavery to spiritual powers of darkness. His sacrificial death offers forgiveness. That Jesus isn't looking for us to be people that either like avoid the dark stuff in our life and, and don't admit it and we think we have to pretend like we've got it all together. He actually calls us to be honest. That we can be honest because of a sacrificial death about the sin that still exists in us. But he also calls us not to be crushed by it. While he sees in Judas and sees in the 11 all of these things that will lead to betrayal and abandonment, he still offers his love while we're still sinners. Christ died for us. So you can be honest about it, but you don't need to be crushed by it. He forgives you. He forgives you. It's this beautiful, beautiful demonstration of his deliverance, of his forgiveness. It's a demonstration of his presence, just like the blood of the lamb made room for the presence of God to live in the doorpost. So the blood of the lamb gives room for Jesus' own spirit to dwell in me and in you and in us, that the spirit of God is here now because of the blood of the lamb. We've been cleansed like sacred space, like a new living temple being built throughout the world with people from different tribes and languages and tongues as a dwelling place for God, that God lives in us and among us. We're reconciled to his presence. You can talk to him as a father. That the death of Jesus creates this new family where we're united together through his work, just like the 
The sacrifice of the lamb brought the people of Israel out as a new nation, a new kind of kingdom, a new family. This sacrificial death that we celebrate every Sunday anticipates his future time when he comes again to make all things new, when the, when the broken things will be made right, the crooked things will be made straight, the wicked things will be expelled, the things that need to be healed and mended and restored will finally come. We look forward to that. And his sacrificial death is the most astounding declaration of God's love for you in the world. That he loves you. He loves you. To give us a meal to celebrate every week as a people, a meal to taste and to feel the realities in a tactile, experiential, sensory way, this expression of God's love for you. It's like God coming into space every Sunday saying, I love you. I love you. Well, you don't know what I've done this past week. I, I do know. And I love you. I laid down my life for you to bring forgiveness, to bring deliverance, to bring my presence, to bring healing, to bring you into a new family. And it all happens by grace alone, through faith alone, in the work of Christ alone. And we get to celebrate that as a people. For me, thinking about this meal and thinking about what Jesus did to bring deliverance, to express his love, to bring us into a new kind of relationship with him, my heart's just like been exploding. Thinking about what we celebrate week after week, but also what we get to celebrate over the next couple weeks as we approach this time in the year where we think intently about the reality of our own brokenness, our own sin, the work of Christ on the cross, and the victory he had in the resurrection. My prayer is simply that we'd be a people, as we look at his love, that our hearts would grow in worship for him, and that worshipful hearts would fuel worshipful lives in every area he calls us to live and to breathe and to work in this world. Let's pray that he'd do that among us. And Jesus, we come right now, and we ask for your mercy and grace to help us. Would you help us to see your love, to see your work on the cross as a demonstration of your love to redeem us from bondage to sin, to bring forgiveness, to deliver us from judgment, to reconcile us to your presence, to prepare us for that final day. Help us to, as we even eat this bread and drink this cup yet again with, with men and women and children around the world today, would you help us to like, increasingly see the beauty and the gravity of what you've invited us into through your death and your resurrection. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Hey, thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all people. More information and more resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Take care.